Vincent van Gogh was a man who was acquainted with hopelessness and even despair. We've got his self-portrait. If we could get that first slide, one of many. He was born into an upper-middle-class family. He became known as an eccentric. Today, he is considered one of the greatest painters to have ever lived. Reading through his extensive letters written to his closest confidant and benefactor, his brother Theo, one sees a complex figure and with a complex relationship to the world and to himself and, and to God. Van Gogh was the son of a theologically liberal Protestant minister. Van Gogh later wrote that his youth and his upbringing was, quote, austere, cold, and sterile. Eventually, Vincent drifted in a more evangelical direction. He became a missionary uh, associated with uh, 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 Dwight Moody, among others, and served as a pastor in a deeply impoverished coal mining community in the south of Belgium. But Van Gogh saw the wealth and the hypocrisy of the Dutch church. Christians wore extravagant clothing and jewelry while the people he served struggled to live and work in positions of extreme poverty and constant danger. And yet, Dutch church leaders reprimanded Vincent repeatedly for identifying too closely with the poor coal mining community in which he was serving. Uh, to show support, for example, for his congregation, Vincent gave up his comfortable lodgings to a homeless family, and he took up, uh, and he took up uh, uh, his own home in a small hut, and he s slept on the floor in a straw mat. His squalid living conditions didn't endear him to church authorities, and eventually they dismissed him for, quote, undermining the dignity of the priesthood. And so Vincent continued to serve, depleting all of his savings, and once he was completely broke, he was forced to leave this community of coal miners that he loved and work for his brother Theo, who owned an art gallery. Vincent would live in poverty the rest of his years. He never made money from any of his paintings. And in his own soul, Van Gogh became disillusioned with the institutional church as he saw it. In paintings, we have another slide here. In paintings, churches became dark and foreboding. Its windows painted black, reflecting the almost complete absence of the love of Jesus that he found within these sterile theologically empty walls. Feeling rejected by the church with its love of wealth and social status, Van Gogh also struggled deeply with mental illness. Vincent suffered from psychotic episodes and delusions and through uh, and, and, and he was worried about his mental stability. He often neglected as well his physical health. He didn't eat properly. He drank too much. One evening after an altercation with his friend Gauguin, uh, Vincent found himself assaulted by inner voices and he severed part of his own left ear. He spent time in psychiatric hospitals, including a period at Saint-Rémy. We have another portrait of him. Uh, there you go. Some have suggested that he suffered from schizophrenia but we really can't know. We do know for certain that Vincent had a condition similar to epilepsy, uh, which, uh, uh, which affected him physically as well as mentally. Uh, he went through p great periods of, of the darkest and deepest depression. Van Gogh's condition may have been made worse by his own uh, habit of sucking on his paintbrushes as he painted. 
the oil paints that Van Gogh used contained a large amount of lead, and this habit eventually may have caused some level of brain damage from lead poisoning, which would have contributed to drifts into mental delusion in his later years. And in the eyes of the world, Vincent was a madman, a drunk, and a failed artist. Presumably in one of these fits of depression and delusion, Van Gogh shot himself in the abdomen at the age of 37. His suicide attempt initially was unsuccessful, and Van Gogh stumbled back to the house where he was staying. He remained lucid and conversant in the aftermath, but several days later he died from blood loss and from the infection that had set in. He died in the presence of his beloved brother, Theo, who sat at his bedside. Can you imagine the heartache, the loneliness, the sorrow? We inhabit a world of tears, a world of suffering, a world filled with overflowing amounts of pain. What, what can you say in the face of such suffering? The tears and the sorrows of this life, they only multiply. How can a, a thoughtful person find any hope in a world filled with such grief? We're not going to turn to a fairy tale today, but to a book that is as drenched in blood and tears and sorrow as the world in which we live, a book that pulls no punches, a book that is as honest as any other in laying out the reality of despair. And I'm speaking, of course, of the Christian Bible. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes. Everything is, is vanity. A more modern translation would be meaningless, meaningless, everything seems meaningless. Is there any ultimate meaning to humanity? Is there any hope that can truly deliver us? The life, this life, this life of increasing pain is a life of decreasing beauty, a life where sorrow goes unanswered, where tears are uncomforted, a life of shame in which we have such hope early on and yet such regrets toward the end. A life filled with sickness and betrayal and death, does it have any meaning? And what can we say in the face of such pain? We're going to look at Romans. This is St. Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome, the eighth chapter. We're going to look at verse 11 and then begin again at verse 18. This letter is the Word of God. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us because the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice but by the choice of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. 
how might these words from St. Paul, 2,000 years after being written, resonate with us today? Well, he talks a lot about the groaning, and we certainly understand the groaning. Creation feels it. He says that the whole creation has been groaning because of the, the effect of the fall. When, when humanity, our first parents, declared independence from God, the whole creation became cursed. And so the life we live in then is one of glory mixed with shame, of beauty and ugliness. Uh, a world that ought to be a certain way and is not that certain way. It's a world filled with pain and suffering and death. The creation itself is groaning. The whole cosmos has felt the impact. Every creature feels it. And we feel it ourselves. Paul says not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly. Creation is groaning, and we're groaning inside. Some of us know how hopeless it can seem. We feel the effects of the fall every day, and, and we groan. What can you say in the face of such sorrow? It's all around us. It's inside of us. It's inescapable. What can you say when you come home from a business trip to find that the furniture is all gone and there's a note left on the kitchen counter saying, it wasn't about you, it's about me. The person that you thought you would live your life with, seeing the pair of shoes that she left behind that you'll never see her walk in again. The future that's been robbed from you. Maybe a counselor could have saved it, but it's too late now. You know it's over. And you realize there's no hope left. It's such sorrow. What do you say to that? What do you say when scrolling through news of Russia's invasion of Ukraine? What can you say when you see that pregnant woman on a stretcher being carried out of the bombed maternity ward and you find out a few days later that she didn't survive? What do you say when you look at those streets of Bucha and see all these civilians with their hands tied behind their back and bullet holes? And you know from satellite images that they were out there for a month in the street, not even respected enough to be buried. What do you say in the face of destroyed apartment buildings, bombed out vehicles, knowing there were civilians inside, in the face of such sorrow and such human evil? What can I say when I look inside my own soul and I see the selfishness, and I see the anger, and I see all the things that were there before I ever became a Christian, and 32 years later, they're still there. They haven't been eliminated. When I see the pride in my own soul, what can you say in the face of chronic pain, in the face of addiction, in the face of mental illness, in the face of the cruelty of Alzheimer's or the loss of a loved one? What can you say to six-year-old Jordan whose disability leaves him bedridden 24-7, being rolled over every two hours so that he doesn't get bed sores? What can you say to those Christians on that beach in North Africa who were shot by Islamic State because they wouldn't renounce the name of Jesus? What can you say in the face of a legacy of racism, systemic injustice, a cycle of poverty? What can you say in the face of violence and lawlessness and disease and humiliation when every one of us ends up in a box or in an urn or scattered over the ocean? Can you feel the hopelessness? What is the trajectory of your life? You know, you, 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 you live, you go through diapers, you crawl, you, 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 
you scoot around, you walk, you go to preschool, you go to school, you go to more school, you go to more school, that gets you into a good school, and then that gets you into good grad school, and then you, and then you get a job, and you get married, and you have kids, and you have grandkids, and, and, and this is a really blessed life. This is everything goes according to plan. And then, and then you end up retiring, and then you end up in a home, and then you end up in a nursing home, and then you end up in a box or a urn. What's the trajectory? Can you, can you feel it? It's the groaning. What can you say to that? We feel it, this groaning of this fallen life that's not so much less than it was intended to be. You know, it, it, one thinks of the words that, that, that were posted at the entrance to Dante's hell. Abandon hope, all ye that go in by me. We've lost our connection with God as the human race and our independence. We find ourselves in conflict with our creator, and, and the result is that we groan under a weight of suffering and death. And that, friends, is why Jesus had to die on that first Good Friday, to restore our relationship with God. It's like in an argument. You've, if you've been around here long enough, you've heard me say this. It's like an argument when, and some of you have been having these arguments for decades, where it basically boils down to, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. No, you're the one that's wrong. No, you're the one that's wrong. Don't get emotional. You're the one that's wrong. Don't make this about my emotions. That's abuse. You're the one that's wrong. And this will go on for decades until somebody has the humility to say, okay, I'm wrong. Until somebody has the humility to take the blame. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. He who had no sin in him became sin for us. He took the blame for my sin and your sin, and he took it all the way to the cross, and he took the blame, he took the punishment, and there is no, now, no more punishment left for you, no more wrath left for you if you have Jesus, if he is your Savior, if he is your, your Lord. Uh, it's like my, my grandfather, who was a, a coal miner up in Appalachia, um, born in 1910, started working in 1916 in the mines, uh, dropped out of first grade to do so. Uh, you know, I, every time I, I hear of a mining accident, I think of, of my, my grandfather because he had lost both of his thumbs and had a sheet of steel in his, in his chest that he couldn't operate on because he had black lung in both lungs and uh, wheezed his entire life. Um, but I remember a story of a, of a coal miner that I've, I've shared many times. Um, there were two coal miners in a shaft when there was a mine collapse and it was a fairly small space. They were saved from the collapse, but they were in a tightly confined space, and, and they knew it would take a long time for them to be dug out of that cave-in. And, and so after a while, after hours went by, they realized they were both getting kind of tired, and they were realizing that there, there was probably running out of oxygen, and so they both put on their, their you know, uh, uh, mine-issued respirators so that they could breathe, and yet one of them realized fairly quickly that his was malfunctioning. And, and he passed out, and he wasn't getting any oxygen. And his best friend was seated right on the floor across from him, and his best friend was single, and he started thinking about this passed-out best friend of his and, and his wife and, and his new baby girl, and... And he moved over and saddled up right next to him and took off his own respirator and put it on his friend. And his friend was carried out of that mine alive. 
but only because his best friend laid down his life to give him his. Friends, that is what Jesus did on the cross. Only imagine it wasn't his best friend. Imagine it was the guy who stole his wife. Because that's what Jesus did for us. It's when we were sinners that Christ died for us. It's when we were his enemies that he laid down his life for us because he loved us. When we suffer, sometimes we instinctively think, God must hate me. And the Bible doesn't always tell us the exact reason for the precise suffering that you're going through at any point. But when you look at the cross of Jesus Christ, there is one reason for your suffering that you can absolutely rule out because God most certainly loves you because he entered into your suffering. He suffered for you. He died for you. He died because he loved you and he could not imagine eternity without you. Because in his self-giving love, the creator of the cosmos saved the world by giving up power, by becoming human, submitting to death, the most shameful death on the cross. And he did it because he loves you. He's committed to you, and he wants to spend eternity with you. We feel the groaning. Creation feels the groaning. It's inside of us. It's all around us. It's because of our broken relationship with God that was broken when our first parents declared independence. But Jesus has come not only to, to... to offer solidarity in suffering, but to restore our relationship with God, giving us a future possible life without that suffering. And the apostles' words here offer something beyond forgiveness of sins and the solidarity of Christ in our suffering because we also see here that Jesus is already now restoring broken lives. We read here about Jesus being present Through his Holy Spirit, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, St. Paul says. Christianity is not a list of doctrines and ethical commandments. Christianity is Jesus Christ, alive, resurrected, and, and, and present at the right hand of the Father and actively ministering through his spirit on planet Earth now. This means that the resurrection power of Jesus can already be at work in your life if you have been converted to Jesus. It's the first crop of new life that's already emerging inside of us. Paul says we have the first fruits of the Spirit. What are the first fruits? It's this time of year. You can see it. It's that first little bit of fruit that pops on a tree. That it, It's not tasty yet. It doesn't look good. You're not going to want to eat it. But... The fact that that first fruit is there tells you that something else is coming. What's coming? More fruit. And the resurrection of Jesus is the beginning of something larger. And his presence, his Holy Spirit in us, is the hearkening of something larger that he's going to do within us. It's only partial in this life, but Jesus is alive and at large. And if you're alive to God in Christ, he is present in you. And this means that Jesus is already restoring damaged, shattered, broken lives like ours. There's a kind of Japanese pottery that dates back as far as the 15th century. We got a picture here of it. Uh, It's called kintsugi. And kintsugi is a, a stunningly beautiful and highly treasured form of pottery in Japan. But kintsugi pottery is pottery that tells a story. You see, Kintsugi begins with a fall, much like the human story. 
Kintsugi begins when a piece of ceramic plate or a cup or a bowl has been accidentally dropped on the floor, something that had been beautiful and useful but is now cracked, broken, ruined, and no longer fit for its original purpose. It always begins with a fall. But rather than discard the piece, a Kintsugi artisan will take the shattered pieces and enter into a process of reattaching them using resin mixed with pure gold or sometimes platinum or silver. And there's no effort at all to, to disguise the cracks. We can get that next slide shows that. Um, indeed, as a, as a philosophy, Kintsugi treats breakage and repair as part of the history of an object rather than something to disguise. Kintsugi is considered more valuable for having been broken and being repaired. It's more valuable and more precious because the artisan has restored it, and the artisan's work is displayed most fully and precisely and visibly, precisely where the damage was the worst. Those gold seams, every one of them tells a story of fall, of loss, of fracture, of brokenness, but also the story of redemption, of a redeemer who has taken those pieces and restored it and loved it and redeemed it. Kintsugi is more beautiful than regular pottery because Kintsugi tells a more beautiful story and places that story on display for all to see. Let's get that next slide. This is what you should see when you walk into a church where the gospel is central. Restored pieces, pieces being restored in the hands of a potter. Nobody covering up their brokenness, nobody hiding the, the cracks, but rather the gospel, Jesus, taking those broken pieces and putting his golden grace on display for all to see. It's the resurrection power of Jesus that is already at work in your lives if you belong to Jesus and believe his good news of salvation as a free gift. Walking into a church, it's like you're walking into an art studio where there are all these different pieces on display, only not a one of them is finished. All are still being worked on. They're different shapes and sizes and styles, but all of them have the same thing in common. You can see every piece, the gold lines reflecting the light, every piece with a different pattern, different, different ways that people were broken, but the same grace of God bringing them and healing them and putting on display Jesus. You don't notice the damage at that point. You notice the beauty of the restoration work that is underway right now. You see the artist's work. You see the artist walking about the gallery, reattaching pieces, filling in gaps, and the beauty of it all comes together, telling a more beautiful story than had the plate never been broken to begin with. The fact that we were broken and are being restored by the Holy Spirit makes it all the more precious because, friends, it shows that you are loved by God. And that's what Christ is doing among his people. He's restoring shattered lives. He's restoring shattered families. He's restoring shattered communities. It's always partial in this life. The scars remain, but they're highlighted and bound together with the golden seams of God's grace. We feel the groaning, yes, but we also see that Jesus is already restoring lives here and now in this life. Thank you. That's good. There's a third thing we see, though. We also see that Jesus Christ has become our ultimate, indeed, our only hope. This is a hope that is more powerful than death. 
This is the confidence that we're going to rise again at the end of time, resurrected in resurrected bodies because our destinies are so inextricably bound up with Jesus who rose from the dead. Now, now of course, some of you are saying, well, that, that would be nice if this were true. And of course, all of this only matters if the dead corpse of Jesus of Nazareth stayed dead for a couple days and then literally came back to life transformed. If that didn't happen, then we're talking about the Easter Bunny, and it really doesn't matter. It's just make-believe. It's fake hope. There's no point to Christianity. St. Paul says if Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead. But what if those early Jesus followers, those early Jewish followers of Jesus of Nazareth, what if they did make it up? What if the early Christian leaders made up these accounts about, for example, the resurrection of Jesus in order to bolster their power and prestige and to make Christianity more appealing and attractive to new converts? Um, it's an honest question. Um, we see how people use religion for power dynamics all the time. Um, several decades ago, the Israeli Jewish scholar Pinchas Lapid examined this question of the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And now understand, Lapid was not a Jew for Jesus. He didn't like Jews for Jesus. He was a Jew for Judaism. Um, but nevertheless, he noted some things. He noted that while the concept of a resurrection was universal almost in first century Judaism, apart from the Sadducees, uh, it was widely held. Everybody expected it to happen at the end of history. Nobody was expecting anybody to rise from the dead, transformed in the middle of history, uh, like Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth evidently had, had claimed to have done. Uh, but, and, and no one was expecting Jesus to rise. Remember, after Jesus died, all his male followers scattered and left the women to deal with the body because they were giving up. Um, but the gospel accounts, Lapid pointed out, all four of them contain inconvenient details, too many inconvenient details to be forgeries because they would have been counterproductive uh, honesty. Uh, for example, the Gospels claim that the founder of this new religion claimed while dying that God the Father had cursed him, had forsaken him. God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Pinchas Lapid said, as a scholar, I can't see why any early Christians would have made that up and put that in there because it makes their leader look bad, religious leader crushed by God. Um, he noted that women were the first witnesses of the resurrected Jesus, and for centuries at that point, that would have been a very inconvenient truth because within their legal system, women were not trusted to, to testify in a court of law. They were considered untrustworthy. If they were making this up, Lapid concluded, they would have made men and men of note be the first witnesses, not women. It, it would be inconvenient, uh, counterproductive. And besides these, these gospels, all of them present the apostles as absolute imbeciles at times. It, I mean, Peter, the chief of the apostles, is even called Satan by Jesus himself at one point. And, and, and you know, if they were fabricating a narrative, this Jewish scholar concluded, they, they could have done better than this. They, they would have needed to have done better than this, uh, you know. And then he noted the, the transformation in this band of disciples. Something happened to make them go from running away and hiding to being so eager about this Jesus that they, all but one of them, died proclaiming Jesus. You know, <laughs> they died for this. Uh, Pinchas Lapid concluded it would take a far larger miracle to explain early Christians than a resurrection from the dead. And so this gives us hope. 
if it's true, a powerful hope that one of them got out. He who raised Jesus from the dead, Paul writes, will also give life to your mortal bodies. It's what Jesus said to Mary and Martha in the passage we read earlier. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live in the face of suffering and death and hopelessness in this life, always and only leading to that coffin or those ashes, always and only leading through a doorway through which every one of us has to pass in the face of that. The resurrection of Jesus is a powerful voice breaking through the darkness saying, death shall not get the last word. Death shall not stand. Life is coming, a life more powerful than death. Hope and life are breaking into the universe. It's like, it's like when, I, when my Android phone dies, which it does every two to three years, and, and I take it to the AT&T store, and they're so nice to take my money, and, and, and they take my poor dying phone, and they hook it up to some stuff and do some jiggery-poo and weird stuff, and all the data on my phone gets zapped up into a cloud, and then they k- kill my phone, and they give me a brand new resurrected phone that doesn't have any flaws. It's unfallen. And, and all that data gets zapped back down into it. And I've got a resurrected phone. And if, if AT&T and, and Samsung can do that, then why do you think that God isn't able to take your soul, zap it up to the cloud, and then bring it, download it right back into a new body resurrected forever? It's a hope more powerful than death. A hope for all creation, because even creation which has been groaning will be brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God and liberated from its bondage to decay. It's a larger cosmic renewal. The Hebrew prophets spoke of it as shalom, as the peace of God. You know, Jesus in his ministry spoke of the day to come as the renewal of all things. The apostles spoke of the day when God will renew everything. John and Peter both spoke of new heavens and new earth, literally a renewed heavens and a renewed earth, transformed when the whole cosmos, in a sense, is resurrected. It's like those words we just heard from Sam Gamgee speaking to Gandalf in chapter 4, book 6 of the Lord of the Rings. Gandalf, I thought you were dead. Then again, I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? And Gandalf responds, a great shadow has departed. A day is coming, friends, when everything sad will be made untrue. A day when the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will restore everything. When all will be made new. In the midst of the groaning, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And friends, that changes everything. Vincent van Gogh was a man acquainted with sorrow. He was rejected by church leaders who were focused on status and wealth and social standing. He was tormented by manic delusions and psychotic episodes. He was wounded in one relationship after another. He was despised. He was hated. He had more regrets than he could count. And in the eyes of his family, friends, and society, he was a failure as a man and a failure as an artist. But as he pulled away from the institutional Dutch Protestant church, And as his theology became more mystical, influenced alike by evangelical Protestantism on one side and Roman Catholicism on the other, even when making his worst decisions or suffering from his worst losses while nursing a hangover or suffering with an STD, even while tied up in an insane asylum, even in the midst of his seizures and his deepest depression, Vincent van Gogh never let 
go of Jesus. He knew there was evil inside of him. He knew he didn't just need a rule book. He needed a redeemer. He knew his only hope lay outside of himself. He wrote this. Vincent Van Gogh wrote, There is much evil in the world and in ourselves. Terrible things. And one does not need to be far advanced in life to be in fear of much and to feel the need of a firm faith in life hereafter and to know that without faith in God one cannot live. One cannot bear it. But with that faith, one can go on for a long time. When Vincent's life took on hope, he gave that hope a color, and that color was yellow. Yellow was the color that was so absent from the windows of the Dutch church that he painted. One notices a gradual increase of the presence of the color yellow in Van Gogh's paintings as he aged. Yellow evoked for him the hope and the warmth and the truth of God's love. We've got another slide. You'll recognize this one. His starry night, one of his most depressive periods, was when he painted the starry night. And one finds here a yellow sun in the midst of the inky blackness of this world and the darkness he found in his own church. One still finds a yellow sun and yellow swirling stars about the universe as God's love is shown through in his creation, even, even when it seemed missing from the church. And by the time he painted the raising of Lazarus, his life was on the mend and he began to face the truth about himself. Let's get that next slide. Based on the text in the Gospels where Jesus weeps at the death of his friend Lazarus and then with great love raises his friend from, from death back to life, the entire picture is, is blindingly bathed in yellow. In fact, as you look upon the face of Lazarus, you might recognize it uh, because it is Vincent van Gogh's own face glowing, surrounded by yellow. Though rejected by his own church, he's surrounded by the hope of God's love. Though this life has been filled with his own sin, and, and he is nevertheless receiving God's mercy. Though he knows himself to be a madman, though he knows himself to be a failure, though he knows himself to be despised by all, he knows there is one who loves him. And that one love is a blazing fire of love. It is complete and it shines forth upon the face of Vincent van Gogh, the love of Jesus, blazing yellow in the love of Christ who raised this broken sinner from the grave to bring him again to glory. Here, shining upon Vincent van Gogh, is the love of God and his own hope in the coming resurrection. Van Gogh reflected on the state of evil and sorrow in this life with these words. Sorrow is better than joy. And even in mirth, the heart is sad. And it is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasts. For by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. Our nature is sorrowful. But for those who have learned and are learning to look at Jesus Christ, there is always reason to rejoice. Let's pray.